Our study leader, Dave Wurtson, challenges each of us to face this momentous choice. Declare the resurrection hoax and curse Jesus as the ultimate religious shyster, or bow before him as the author of life and depend upon him to pour resurrection life into your decaying soul. As we begin to move into the account of the resurrection, we need to begin by emphasizing that Jesus Christ was dead. He was truly dead. You know, our confession of faith, and it's one of its most simple forms, is in 1 Corinthians 15, and it says that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and He was buried. Jesus Christ, as we begin the story of the resurrection, was dead. He was truly dead. His body hung on the cross. The Roman soldiers went by and because the Jewish leaders had requested that the bodies be taken down from the tree before the Sabbath began at 6 o'clock, the Roman soldiers went from one cross to the next examining the bodies. They broke the legs of the two criminals that were hanging with the Lord which would cause them to be unable to suspend themselves and hold themselves up so they could get air into their lungs, so instantaneously they would die in just a matter of minutes of suffocation. They came to Jesus, and John's Gospel tells us that the Roman soldier examined him, and he was an expert in knowing when people were dead. And instead of breaking the legs, which would have been a travesty of the prophecy of Scripture, because the Old Testament said not one bone of him would be broken, instead he pierced his side and fulfilled the prophecy of Zechariah, where it says they shall look upon him who was pierced. Blood and water flowed from the side of Christ. And if you haven't got the message yet, someone that hangs on the cross in agony, someone who is pierced by a Roman spear, after that Roman soldier has already concluded there's no need to break his leg because his spirit has departed from him, Jesus was a corpse hanging on the tree. The disciples are gone. All of his friends are too afraid. We open up to John's gospel and the story continues. I'd like you to turn to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, verse 38. It says later, that would be later that afternoon, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph, who we haven't met before, was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jews. Maybe he was like some of you. You're a little bit afraid to go public for Jesus. But the incredible thing about the moving of the Holy Spirit within us that when the Holy Spirit is truly in your life, eventually you must confess with your mouth. Eventually the belief of your heart will go public. I believe that's what Romans 10 means. If we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord, if we believe in our heart, and if we confess with our mouth, we have eternal life. Because belief causes a reality to take place in our life, which eventually, like all truth, bubbles forth. And I love the way John develops his theme of these two secret disciples. And when Jesus came to the trial, when he was, came before the Sanhedrin, these two men stood against the entire Sanhedrin and did not agree with the mob violence that was taking place against Jesus. But now when Peter, that Galilean roughhoon fisherman who always had a mouth for Jesus, when Peter is silent, when John, the beloved disciple who was always near the Lord, was far away, 
The Lord brings up the most unexpected remnant, two men that no one would have ever dreamed would go public. But these two members of the Sanhedrin, these two sophisticated Jews, risk everything. They risk being denied membership in the Sanhedrin. They risk the mockery of Caiaphas and Annas, the high priests. But they go in before Pilate and they ask for the body of Jesus. The other Gospels tell us that Pilate was amazed that Jesus was already dead. He was amazed that he had died so quickly. And so he sent some Roman soldiers out to check it out again. The soldiers come back and they say, certainly he is dead. And Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea are given the body of Jesus. It tells us that Nicodemus brought a mixture there in verse 39 of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. And they took Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it up. And you can, you've all seen some passion plays where you've seen how they put the linen underneath the arms and slowly and gently lowered the body down from the cross. And Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea carried that out probably with their servant's help. They took the body of Jesus and the two of them wrapped it with spices in verse 40 in strips of linen. This was in accordance with the Jewish burial customs. What's happening here is that they're taking these strips of linen and they're taking this mixture of resinous, sweet-smelling myrrh and the aloes that they brought with them, and they wrap this gummy substance together. In fact, as it all mixed together, it would make kind of a sticky, hardened shell around the body of Jesus. And this was the burial custom of the Jews. Unlike the Romans who would cremate and unlike the Egyptians who would embalm, the Jews would wrap the bodies in this linen and they would use all of these aromatic substances so that during the period of mourning for three or four days that the families would be able to stand the stench of death. And this is all carried out. Jesus is bound with this linen wrapping. A separate headpiece is put on. It's also possible that they took uh, a long shroud light, which was also a way that they would cover the body and put a single shroud over all of this wrapping that they had done. Then they took Jesus and they placed him in the garden tomb. It says there was a garden and in that garden a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. We learn from some of the other gospel accounts that it was Joseph of Arimathea's grave that he had prepared for himself. We learn that he was a wealthy, powerful man. And what we're beginning to see is the hand of the Almighty God. And God the Father is saying that wickedness has been able to grab my son. All of our sin was able to come upon the Son of God. And he became our substitute. He became sin for us who knew no sin. And the satanic kingdom was able to freely do with the Son of God what they chose to do. But now the gospel accounts begin to move into a period of glorification. Jesus, who had become a criminal for us, is no longer that criminal. He no longer is under that judgment that caused that darkness to come over all of Judea as Jesus took our place. And the hand of God begins to start a story of glorification. Because Jesus is buried like a king. 
Instead of his body being roughly torn down from the cross, his bones broken, thrown in the trash heap, the criminal burying place of Judea, two wealthy, powerful Judean Sanhedrin members take the body, treat it royally, and bury it in a wealthy man's tomb. All this took place that it might be fulfilled because the Old Testament told us that he would die with criminals but he would be buried with the rich in his grave. Whether or not Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were, were even aware of how powerfully they were fulfilling Scripture, as we have the Old Testament Scriptures available to us, we start to see this finger of God like we have all the way through the life of Jesus that is carefully and explicitly dealing with all the details of Christ's life. But we begin the story of the resurrection with absolutely no doubt that Jesus was dead. He was buried. Every one of you as believers need to confess that. Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. He was buried. He was dead. The swoon theory, which is one of the postulations that's made to try to counteract the belief in the resurrection, says that what happened on the cross was that he swooned, that he fainted, and he went into kind of a catatonic state where he appeared to be dead, possibly maybe like some of those in Haiti that supposedly go into some kind of a catatonic state where they look like they're dead. And what you've got to see here is that that kind of development flies in the face of all the historical documents that we have available to us and what i want every single one of you to realize young people ask me like why should i believe in who jesus is and what i want to try to do is to lay some foundations for why you should believe the account that i just read to you comes from about 90 a.d it presents itself as being written by a man who actually experienced these events matthew mark luke come earlier than that. Mark probably much earlier. When Mark was written, many of the generation that, that had experienced these events that we're talking about, the death and the burial of Jesus, many of those people were still alive. In fact, in about 58, in the late 50s, when the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Corinthians, he was able to talk about these accounts that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried, and Paul was able to say many of the people are still alive. Ask them. And you say, well, Dave, how do we know the accounts are true? The reason that we're here is that we believe that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. The majority of people in this room believe that. You might be coming because you're questioning and you, you want to get some answers, that there's a hunger in your heart for spiritual reality. And I want to just try to talk to you really straight. You say, well, Dave, why should I believe? How do I know it's true? Well, the people that are around you, if you were to ask them in the depths of your soul, do you believe that Christ died for your sins? Do you believe that he was buried? They would say, yes, I do. Now, ever since about 33 AD, 30 or 33 AD, there have been people like the people sitting around you who believe that. You say, Dave, why are you stressing the idea of looking around? Because the people that believe that are on a continuum, I can take the belief of the people that believe he died for their sins, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day, I can take that right back through the centuries to 33 A.D. 
Now that's a historical reality. It's a reality that's sitting next to you. Nobody in the modern world, unless they want to just go totally against all the evidence, can disagree with that. There have been those that believe that Jesus is alive from 33 A.D. until now. That's fact. Now what you have to wrestle with is why do they believe and is there a substantial reason to believe and the choices that are open to you is that everything that we've done in this room is just a big farce. It's a big hoax. We've come into this house to, to glorify the Lord. Let's forget about ourselves and think about who? We think about Jesus. If Jesus did not die, if he did not rise again, that is a hoax. And it's a horrible hoax. It's the most incredible deception that's ever been placed upon this planet. It's not like a few thousand fans of Elvis Presley who everybody knows are dreaming things up. It's not a, a nice, gentle kind of a story that everyone knows is a bunch of baloney and it only would be put in you know, some of the magazines that we know are telling fables all the time. We don't really take it seriously when uh, the Globe or you know, the, whatever, the, the different magazines you look at when you're checking your groceries out, we don't really take it seriously when they say UFOs sighted, extraterrestrial beings just invaded downtown Dallas. You don't really take that seriously. But you can't do that with Jesus. You've got to see this clearly because in the modern world, the modern world is telling you everybody has their thing. The Islamic people have their thing. The Hindus have their thing, the Buddhists have their thing, and the Christians have their thing, and the Jews have their thing. And the idea is that everybody has their thing, and your thing is good for you, and my thing is good for me. And what I want every one of you to understand is that you cannot hold that pattern. You can do that with Hinduism, Buddhism. You can do it with the New Age. You can do it with almost every belief system. You can do it with modern Judaism, but you cannot do it with New Testament Christianity. And I guarantee you, I guarantee you I will get up and walk out of this room never to teach you again if the bones of Jesus are found rotting in the Palestinian soil. I promise you, I will leave. I will publicly tell you it was a farce. It was the biggest hoax that ever has been given. Those are the choices. And the idea that Jesus somehow swooned, if you want to try to think about that, you've got to have the faith to believe that a man who had 39 lashes, young people, what you'd have to believe is that someone that was brutalized like that, and he was hung on a cross, he was pierced in the side by a Roman soldier, the Roman soldiers repeatedly said he's dead, Pilate checked it out. They said he was dead. Nicodemus take this guy with Joseph of Arimathea and they wrap him in linen. They get him tightly wound up in this cocoon. And you've got to believe that he's swooned. He wasn't really dead. That's a pretty hard thing to believe. Now most people don't say that he swooned. Most people believe he died, he died, he died. In fact, very few even agnostics and skeptics will debate that. He died. He died. But we've learned the last few weeks why he died. He died in our place. You know, death is the sledgehammer. And when you're young, you think it'll never happen. On Saturday, I go in. I go into Bill Venable and Nell's house. 
Now, about 10, 11 years ago, Bill had his first heart attack. And I went over to Waxahachie and was in the intensive care with him, and I was holding Bill's arm, and Bill was saying, Dave, I really think this is it. I really think I'm not going to make it through the night. And he looked at me and said, you know, but it's going to be all right. Because I believe that he's alive. I believe that Jesus is alive. Be sure the church family takes care of my family. And Bill said, I know that the Savior is alive and it's okay, but take care of my family. Dennis Hill, who's home with the Lord now. Dennis had terminal cancer. And Dennis, before he died, it was right there when he died, but before he went into that coma, he would hold my hand and say, I know that he's alive. Be sure to take care of my family. The medical doctor said to Bill, Bill, if I was a betting man, if I went to Las Vegas and they said, what will you bet that Bill will be alive by July 4th? I would bet against it. I'm not trying to scare anybody. I'm trying to level with you and share the truth. Death, the reality that Jesus died, the fact that we could die is part of reality. And it's a part of reality that hits you like a sledgehammer. Yesterday morning, as we were drinking coffee and eating breakfast, I look over and Mary, these big tears are rolling down Mary's face. I go, oh no, what have I done now? She just said, Bill. She was crying. Why? Because death makes you cry. When I came to Midlothian, people like Bill and Nell, they were just young. Man, we had all of life to live. If the next few years go by, there's a possibility, a very strong possibility, that some of my very good friends, just by the natural course of life, that will have to say goodbye. And that's the pits. That is really, really the pits. It sucks all the joy out of life. It ruins everything. And Jesus knows what that's like. Jesus experienced that goodbye. He knows the terror of it. He knows the fear of it. And what I want you to realize is that if you end just with death, all you do is have photographic albums, snapshots of what our family used to be like. Well, I want to share with you just honestly, that tears my heart out. That ruins everything. If my mom is just dead, then when I dream about her, and, and I remember when I was a little boy, and I remember her taking me to brigade and taking me to church, and I remember fun times in Florida. If mom is forever gone, those memories become a stench to me. They become horrible. And I want to just be honest with you, it doesn't help me too much to say, well, she's floating somewhere like the Buddhists would think. She was dropped like a little drop in the ocean of eternity, and she's blending with all the forevers and ever and ever. That just doesn't really help me very much. By the way, some of you that drink, and with an audience this big, some of you do, from the kids all the way on up to the adults. I want to show you one of the major reasons you drink is because of the agony that I'm talking about now. There's a dullness. There's a heartache in our hearts. That's why people club, because you can forget you see, eternity is written on every one of your heart. It's written on my heart. You cannot forget. You worry about it. You're concerned about it. You know that life can all of a sudden be gone, and that turns it all into a farce. 
And so you drink because the spirits of alcohol or drugs can take away that ache. It can make you feel, I'm alive! I'm really alive! And I forget about the fear. But then when you wake up the next morning, the fear comes back and the boredom and the agony, the vanity of vanities of Ecclesiastes, all is vanity. What I want to share with you today forever takes the cry of emptiness of emptiness. It's all emptiness. It buries it in the grave. Because Jesus did not end with Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea wrapping him in linen like when he was a baby in all these sweet-smelling aromas which can never snuff out and take away the stench of a corpse that's dead. Because the story goes on. It says, early in the first day of the week, verse 20, early in the first day of the week in John's Gospel, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been rolled, removed. And as you put together the accounts, and I like, I really encourage you to look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It will be kind of a puzzle for you. Because to be honest with you, it's very difficult to get it all to fit together. Because it's not like in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that we have all of these accounts neatly all worked out that we have this very unified story. Now, that's really bothered a lot of people because they say, man, it's hard to get all this to fit. Like, one of the Gospels will say that it was, it was dawn, it was light. John's Gospel says that it was still dark. One of the Gospels will say that Mary went, saw that the stone was rolled away, then she runs back and gets the other disciples. Another Gospel said that they went in and they saw angels. And, it, and you got all of this going on. And to be honest with you, this week that's kind of challenged me a little bit. Because often the kind of teaching that I've had through the years, you know, we kind of gloss over that. What I want to share with you, there's some real problems trying to work it all out. Because I've been thinking about it and praying about it this week. You know what I've realized? What we have in the Gospels is not a very well worked out, prefabricated account. Which I would expect if it was, a, if it was just a hoax. In fact, it's amazing that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have left all the difficulties right there. Now, I'm not saying that the difficulties cannot be worked out because I'm smart enough to realize that I've seen events happen right in my own lifetime and Mary and I will look at the same event and man, she's right and I'm wrong. No, we've got a lot of different perspectives on it. You have that too. And that's what we have in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's like these very early witnesses to the resurrection tell their story. And it's amazing how they look at it from different perspectives and what they're telling us is you, you're not being given in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John accounts that were all neatly worked out. Instead, what you have is these eyewitnesses from different perspectives that are sharing with you about what they observed on Easter morning. Okay? And what I'd like you to do, I'd like to go right through a whole series of witnesses. Dave, why should I believe? I'll tell you. Why you need to believe that Jesus is alive? Why you need to believe that Jesus died on the cross for our sins? Why should I believe, Dave? Why should you believe? And I'll share with you from my own heart. First of all, the accounts that we're going to talk about today, it's a reality. I can show you the documents. We have early documents from very early in the second century that show us that the accounts that are sitting in your lap Go right back to the beginning. 1 Corinthians 15 that goes right through a whole series of resurrection experiences was written 
during Paul's ministry was written in the 50s, less than 20 years after the events took place. Now that's a fact. That's not something I'm making up. You can study that in the university. Even an agnostic, if he's honest, is going to have to admit these traditions go back very early. This week I read a lot of critical scholars. Those critical scholars, they will hold this. The accounts that you have in your lap are traditions that have been reworked by the church. But even that liberal scholar will admit the traditions go back right to the time. They go back very early. Mark's Gospel will be dated in the 60s. And they'll hold that there's traditions behind Mark's Gospel. So that's a, an objective reality. So these early documents go right back to the time, very near the time when these events took place. Now let's look carefully at what the documents do. And I would encourage you to do this more and more as a believer. What I notice is believers say, oh yeah, Jesus rose again from the dead. I said, okay, what's Matthew's account of the resurrection? I don't know. How does Matthew's account of the resurrection differ from Mark's account of the resurrection? What about Luke and John? And what do you do with John? John's a whole lot different than all the rest of them. Incredibly, we've been raised in the church for years, and here's the most important reality of our faith, and many times we don't very carefully and systematically go through those accounts. There are ten recorded appearances of the risen Christ in the Holy Scriptures. I'm not going to tell you all ten of them, but you can find all ten of them on your own. There are ten recorded appearances of the resurrected Christ in the Scripture. But what all four Gospels are doing is giving us a series of witnesses, objective witnesses that God wants to give to you to answer the question, why should I believe? Let's look at some of them. Let's look, first of all, at the testimony of the guards. Turn over to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28, and we have the story of the guard. Verse 2, let's look at it. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven. This is Matthew 28, verse 2. And going to the tomb, he rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothes were white as snow. The guards shook, and they became like dead men. Evidently, this took place while it was still dark, early on Sunday morning, before any of the women came to the tomb. And you need to be careful because Matthew and Mark and Luke are not real careful with their chronology because in the ancient times, they were much more concerned to communicate the truth of a story and they didn't follow strict chronology like we do in our Western thinking. And so it's very possible that what we have is not just a strict chronological account. In fact, it'll be very difficult for you if you look at the gospel as being strict chronology, A, B, C, because they mix the events around to get across their points. It's a very important thing. But, you know, I had problems with the earthquake. You know, I had problems with an earthquake. Man, if there was an earthquake... That should have disrupted everything. Well, remember on the cross, we learned there was an earthquake when Jesus died that probably broke the veil of the temple. Now, what bothered me a little bit is the fact, well, how could there be an earthquake just a couple days later? Now, you can solve that one. What do you know about earthquakes? There's usually aftershocks, so it only makes sense. Now, God didn't have to work according to the natural thing. What I want to try to do is to illustrate that you can go from a critical mindset and you can get, man, this whole thing is just a fable, or you can open your heart to the Lord Jesus. And I, I want to be honest with you. I go through this in my own mind. I think it's important not to be afraid and to open your heart to the truth. 
And don't be afraid of what people might throw against the Bible. Jesus is going to be standing there strong and well no matter what people throw against us. But it only makes sense. There was an earthquake when he was on the cross. Evidently, there was some kind of an aftershock. The angel comes down. The soldiers become like dead men. Now, the soldiers run in verse 11, and they say this. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city. Evidently, they woke up, and they told the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, you were to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed, and this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. If you want to reject the resurrection of Christ, this is one of your best options, okay? This really is. This is probably much better than the swoon theory. If you want to reject the resurrection, if you want to be a man of faith that disbelieves the resurrection, so you want to put your faith in the fact that Jesus didn't rise again from the dead, here's one of your best bets. In fact, this is the dominant one that many Jews adopted down through the centuries. It was the story of the soldiers. The disciples came. They stole the body. Now, in order to put your faith in that, you're going to have to put your faith in the fact that these robust soldiers were overcome by some namby-pamby, scared-to-death disciples. You're going to have to get it all together that these disciples who grabbed this corpse, this stinky corpse that has aromatic smell mixed in with it, they took the body off somewhere, they did something with it, and then in the streets of Jerusalem they came forth, and these guys went from being these real afraid people like Peter denying the Lord, all of a sudden they're going all over Jerusalem saying, He's alive! He's alive! He's alive! It happens at funerals all the time, right? People in mourning often have great exuberance, right? Well, if you want to believe what the soldiers say, that's what you're going to have to put your faith in. Now, we're going to put a little bit more detail with a story that's going to make it even worse. The objective facts make that story a little bit harder. We'll pick it up in just a minute. What I want you to see is, if these are just fabrications, if I wanted to convince you of a fable that Jesus rose again, would I tell you a story about the Jewish soldiers that go to the high priest and come up with the best explanation that's probably ever been given for the empty tomb? And I just let a little bit of the cat out of the bag. I want you to notice something. Everybody agrees what? The tomb is, the body is, gone. Very important. That's a historical fact. Nobody's disagreeing. The body's gone. This is the great mystery. What happened to the body? Okay? The soldiers, and what Matthew wants you to get, the soldiers are giving eloquent testimony. The body's gone. Now, how do we explain it? They explain it. The disciples stole it. You want to put your faith in that? You can. I think it's a little bit difficult to believe that. The next thing I want you to see is the testimony of the women. Now, if this was a fabrication... Would I come up with the very first people that see Jesus Christ alive have several women see it? Now, just to play the devil's advocate for a minute, Josephus wrote, Josephus really illustrating how Jewish men felt about women in the first century, Josephus said, don't ever listen to the testimony of women because their sensitive nature and excitable nature makes everything they say uncredible. 
And all the women said, boo, right? But you've got to understand, in the first century, in the first century, that was a very dominant spirit. So what do the gospel accounts do? In other words, they're fabricating a story, and the very first people they have to see the resurrected Christ are all these women? You see, the very fact that it's so incredible from a first century viewpoint, which by the way tells a whole lot about the fact that God, ladies, doesn't agree with Josephus. But I want you to see how it all works together. If this story was a hoax, I would have never written it with all these women seeing the resurrected Christ. In fact, we're going to find out the men won't even buy it. They tell the ladies, ladies, you're out of your mind. How could you ever say something like that? Two of them leave for Emmaus. The ladies come back. He's alive. He's alive. Two of them just get up and leave. And they're still grumbling on the way to Emmaus saying, all these crazy ladies. They told us some cock and bull story that they saw him alive. Think about that. Now let's look at what these women saw. Let's look at Luke chapter 24, 1 through 8. Matthew, Mark, Luke 24, 1 through 8. All the Gospels give us an account of these ladies that see the Lord. It says on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the women took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. Evidently, they didn't know that Nicodemus had already done the job. It was getting late, and they had to leave before 6 to get back home. And they couldn't see what was going on inside the Hundao tomb. So they're going to take care of the body. And they had to wait till early Sunday morning after the Sabbath was over to do that. Now, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord. And that's the testimony again and again. Now, while they were wondering this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. Now, if you have trouble with that idea of angels kind of appearing and disappearing, in fact, one of the big critical mistakes I think that's made is that critics tend to look upon angels like people. People have to walk into places. They have to depart from places. And so they have a lot of trouble with, in, in all the accounts, all of a sudden the ladies see angels. The men will look in, no angels. The women are crying, the angels appear. Before you throw that out, like a lot of critics do, and say, well, man, it showed you that just a fabrication, the story's so inconsistent. Before you throw it out, at least give yourself the chance to begin in Genesis and go through the Bible and look at what the Bible tells you about the nature of angels. Because you owe it to yourself before you jump to a conclusion and judge angels the way you would judge people. I would find out in a study of angels, it's pretty standard procedure for angels to kind of appear and disappear. And evidently, it's one of the characteristics of glorified bodies because Jesus is going to suddenly appear and suddenly disappear. Now, if you've got trouble with that, that's fine. If you want to just stay locked in the present scheme of things and not understand that there is a spiritual heavenly world where angels can do things that you cannot, that's fine. And you'll end up being like someone that lived and sees man landing on the moon. When I was a kid, Mickey Mouse went to the moon. When I was a kid, I used to read a cartoon book, Mickey Goes to the Moon. Now, when we actually did that, I could say, ah, oh, that's just a story. It's a bunch of baloney. Man doesn't go to the moon. Man doesn't get in spaceships. Mickey Mouse does that. It's all made up in Disneyland. Well, what happened? 
Well, from the time that I was a kid until the period just recently, man got a lot more knowledge. They got a lot more technology. And they were able to do something that we only dreamed of doing for hundreds of years. Now, there are still people who are saying, well, that's impossible. Well, they have the right to say that. Some of these things are hard for us to believe. They are hard for us to believe. But with more knowledge, and when you're dealing with angels, you've got a supernatural king. You've got a supernatural creator. And if he wants to make angels appear and disappear, and he wants to manifest them in certain ways at different times, that's his business. But the ladies all express that they meet these supernatural beings. And what do these supernatural beings tell them? They say this, In fright, the women bowed down their faces, and the angels said to them, Why? Or the men said to them, because the angels evidently appear as men in the Scripture, Why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Remember how he told you, and repeatedly in the Gospel of Luke and in Matthew and Mark, Jesus predicted that he would rise from the dead. While he was still with you, that he would appear to you in Galilee. The Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men. He will be crucified, and on the third day he will rise again from the dead. Then they remembered his words. So when they came back from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the others. And then they tell us it was Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of Jesus, and the others with them who told the disciples this. Look how the disciples react. But they did not believe the women because their words seemed to them like nonsense. We go back to John's gospel. Let's pick up another testimony. Let's skip to the testimony of John and Peter. Turn back to John 20. Evidently, if you put the accounts together, evidently Mary Magdalene was the impulsive one. And Mary Magdalene, when she saw the stone rolled away, and possibly she went into the tomb, but she got so excited, so concerned about everything, I'm not sure that Mary was with the ladies when the angels gave their explanation of what happened. I'm not sure. You'll have to ask Mary. But Mary Magdalene comes across in John's Gospel. It's kind of being very impulsive, and she's evidently a good runner because she runs back to the disciples and tells them excitedly, they've taken away the body of the Lord. Look what she says in verse 2 of John 20. They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. She might have seen the angels and thought they were the they that took the body away. And she got so excited she didn't listen to their explanation. It says, we don't know where they put him. Now, once again, what I want you to see is you don't have people here that are dying to believe on the hallucination that Jesus rose again from the dead. Through this whole account, they are struggling. It's like they've got blinders over their eyes. They can't believe that Jesus has risen from the dead. So Mary runs and says, Simon, Peter, you need to come. John, you need to come. Something's terrible happened. The body's gone. So then John and Peter take off. So Peter and the other disciples started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter. Evidently, John was into modern calisthenics and ran every day. He was in better shape than Peter. Evidently, Peter had a little midlife hangover. And John got there first. Verse 5, he bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there but did not go in. Now that's pretty characteristic of John. Peter's the real strong one. And John's his close friend. And I don't know why exactly John didn't go in. But you know, I've been with people around graveyards and some people are a little bit uptight around graveyards, especially if something weird's going on. So John waits. It says, Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and he went into the tomb. Not Peter. He doesn't wait at all. He goes right in. 
He went into the tomb, and he saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. Now, the cloth was rolled up by itself, and, and it's, it's difficult to determine whether the text is telling us that it was kind of folded and put away neatly, or whether what John is describing, and remember, that's why I spent so much time telling you how they prepared the body. They would wrap the whole body, and they did the head separately. The headpiece was separate. So if you look at these grave clothes, John gives the impression that on this slab, if you've ever been in, if you've seen pictures of a Palestinian tomb, you've got a slab with a shelf. And on this slab and shelf, the grave clothes are lying there. And the head is in its circular form, all just still there. And Peter looks at this, and it's really confusing to him. He walks out of the tomb, and he's scratching his head. According to Luke, he goes back, and he's wondering, what in the world is going on? John, the apostle, then goes in, the beloved disciple. Finally, verse 8, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and he believed. But they still did not understand from the scripture that Jesus was to rise again from the dead. Now, why did he look? Why did he see and believe? If the tomb would have been empty, if the tomb would have been really, really empty, totally empty, it would be a lot different than what the gospel accounts tell us. The tomb wasn't empty. The tomb wasn't empty. Now, the tomb was empty of a body, but the tomb was not empty of the grave clothes. And you say, well, Dave, what's significant about that? Let's go back to the soldier's story. The disciples came in. They grabbed the body of Jesus, and that's why there's an empty tomb. So I can see the disciples, Peter and John, the other disciples, doubting Thomas. They, they overcome this, the guard. They roll the stone away, and then they scratch their heads. Now, how can we do this? Somehow, we've got to get that body out of there of all this linen that's all stuck together, and it's beginning to harden, so they're scratching their heads. You know, they can't do one of these cartoon things, you know, where you grab some of the linen, and you hook it onto a truck, and the truck spins it all off. See, then there would have been linen all over the tomb. Man, there would have been stuff all over the place. By the way, ladies, if you want a real objective evidence for the fact that Christ rose again from the dead, what do you know about men? What do you know about men when it comes to linen and stuff like that? How many of you ladies spend a good deal of time going around the house picking up things? This tomb is really together. I mean, the grave clothes are lying there, the headpiece is separate, and John looks and he believes. You know why? It's why I believe Jesus rose again from the dead. One of the reasons. It's not just pretend. Crosses and intensive care awards and car accidents happen. And they turn all the running that I might do and all the fun that I might have, they turned into a big heartache because human life is so fragile it can be gone just like that. 
and I drive away from that house and I say, oh, no. I'd like us to be able to go on. I'd like just to always live. There's a hunger in the human heart. I'd like to always be able to celebrate holidays with you all, to be able to speak to you. I'd like it just to go on. But it doesn't, does it? We grow old, and people are missing, and life changes just like that. Sickness comes. And if all you see is that, it starts to pull you down. The tomb was not empty. The grave clothes were lying there. You know why? Because Jesus did not need them any longer. Jesus didn't need them any longer. That Jesus, a few minutes later, appeared to Mary Magdalene. Simon Peter left the tomb wondering. Sometime during that day, Jesus had a personal time with Simon Peter. That night, when the disciples came back, from the two disciples came back from the Emmaus Road, when they told their story of how they'd spent time with Jesus on that journey, right while the disciples were together, the eleven were together, Jesus appeared to them. Doubting Thomas said, I won't believe unless I put my fingers in his hands. So a week later in the same room, Jesus comes back to them again. They go up to Galilee. They leave Judea, go up to Galilee, and Jesus appears to them by the Sea of Galilee. The book of 1 Corinthians tells us that over 500 people saw Jesus at one time. Ten concrete, objective experiences, different people, different times, saw Jesus alive. Look at the evidence. I'd encourage you to look at the evidence. Look at the ten appearances and say, Lord Jesus, if it's true, then help me to give my entire being to telling others. 